I have a list of the questions Quora has deemed related to. What are the best articles, features, or posts about Elon Musk, his life, his history, etc.? So this is a, a sample of what people are asking yeah, about Elon what are yeah. the people? What do the people want to know about Elon? Yeah, yeah. Lay, lay it on me. Who is Elon Musk's father? Did his father mold Elon to be the person he is today? <laughs> what about the influence of genetics? What is he what? doing now? First off, how can anyone... That even... man wants a problem solved what? that we don't really have an answer for. Was it nature or nurture with Elon? <laughs> yeah. right, what do you next... call a Quora user? A Quora? Quora. The Quorum of Quoras. The Quorum of Quora Quorum. Quote the Quora Quorum. <laughs> next question. Is Elon Musk for real? <laughs> that's a, that's, I have that question. I have that question. I submitted that. And then the saddest one of all, I find this very odd. Does Elon Musk ever procrastinate? <laughs> oh, wait. By continuing, I have to agree that I'm at least 13 <laughs> years Quora old. Is such an asshole with this. Oh, my fucking God. I logged in and it wants so many things for me. What are your interests? I mean, it's a dating site for the keen of mind. What do you want? I'm already logged into Quora. Looking at all the questions in the topic, Elon Musk. Uh, Elon Musk is abusive, has not invented anything <laughs> new, works on projects anyone could, and torments his ex-wives slash people he talks to. Why is he liked? <laughs> I love it. Is Elon Musk going to be the richest man in the world? I like the idea that somebody's got a stake in that. Whoa. Was Elon Musk bald? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> we all know he is involved. Open that up. Was he bald? Can Elon Musk stop the upcoming World War III? <laughs> and question right adjacent. What makes Elon Musk so good at email? What? What, what, what makes him so good at email? Let's get some answers. Was Elon Musk bald? <laughs> Great question. No. No. <laughs> Elon was never bald. <laughs> But he was certainly heading down the path of male pattern baldness. So, yes. <laughs> Elon simply had a hair transplant. It solved the problem. <laughs> it's really true. You see him and Teal. He's fucking bald with the PayPal computer. And he now he's got a full head of hair. Oh, man. There really is a before and after. He, yeah. looks, he looks like a sad Russian bureaucrat in the before. I think I'm going to read this one. How was the childhood of Elon Musk? <laughs> How was it? How was the how was that childhood? Here's the fucking answer to that question. He had a pretty rough childhood. <laughs> he had a very tough time at school. He was bullied a lot and almost killed on one occasion when he was thrown down some stairs. Dude, we read that yeah, version of that. Yeah. He was not almost killed. There was also an instance where the bullies turned his best friend against him. He was trapped in Mean Girls. I love when bullies do that kind of complicated. <laughs> South African psychological warfare. You're not going to like this Elon Musk anymore. You got that? We're going to pound you, bro. What foul plans I instill into the group. So there is that instance. And then as a result of that instance, he buried himself in books. <laughs> Literally, he was in a tomb of the written word. Now that James too has betrayed me, pile on the books, bring them on to me. Dump trucks. In a way, my first rocket aimed not skyward, but beneath the page. Knowledge is my only value. Bury me alive like a Chinese emperor. Oh my God. Everyone is so overwrought. <clears throat> How does Elon Musk study? 
In this post, I will explain all that I have gathered from various interviews oh I have God. watched and multiple blog posts I have read. I will try to make this answer as comprehensive as possible and also try to explain some of the concepts as I have understood them and applied them in my own working style. Since I work in a technological company, it is very easy for me to see applications of such concepts. I will not be revealing any of the things I do at work or any of the details on what I have to work on. I will only simplify some of the concepts that Elon Musk reiterates and you- how they work in the engineering world for young engineers with some examples. In addition, I have written about Elon Musk several times before I was following his interviews and wanted to answer some intriguing questions on Quora. I have even applied some of the concepts in my own working style, and it is certainly helpful when you actually do understand these principles and derive a magical formula. You could take a look at many of my answers in the following links. You will certainly get to know a few more details. I don't want to make this answer a big repetition of these links, so here they are. First... Your question reveals a number of mistakes. <laughs> the true magician actually specializes in mastering the history of wizardry first and the laws of wizardry second, all combined together before anyone attempts any acts of magic. I know this from the following examples. <laughs> Did you know that when I lived in a tunnel of books beneath South Africa, something Elon Musk also once did, a crucial part of an innovative, hardworking, technological magician's training, one must eliminate one's bald spots first. No one must learn about the bullies. Learning about the bullies is the most difficult part of any young wizard entrepreneur's early years. This can be quite disappointing, especially as your subterranean library life that follows is so very lonely. Welcome to the Fic Deck, son. What you see in a total eclipse is entirely different from what you know. Usually, it is a bit of a trick to keep your knowledge from blinding you. But during an eclipse, it is easy. What you see is much more convincing than any wild-eyed theory you may know. The sun was going, and the world was wrong. From all the hills came screams. A piece of sky beside the crescent sun was detaching. A loosened circle of evening sky suddenly lighted from the back. It was an abrupt black body out of nowhere. It was a flat disk. It was almost over the sun. That's when the screams began. All at once, this disk of sky slid over the sun like a lid. The sky snapped over the sun like a lens cover. The hatch in the brain slammed. Abruptly, it was dark night, on the land and in the sky. In the night sky was a tiny ring of light. The eyes dried, the arteries drained, the lungs hushed. There was no world. We were the world's dead people, rotating and orbiting around and around, embedded in the planet's crust, while the earth told down. We had, it seems, loved the planet and loved our lives, but could no longer remember the way of them. The light was wrong. 
there were stars. It was over. Nick, you're planning on driving where to see the eclipse? To Columbia, South Carolina. Why? The short story is that I've never seen a total solar eclipse. And uh, this is the first total solar eclipse in my lifetime that's like within driving distance of where I live. And then also, my father, who survived colon cancer a couple of years ago, told me that the reason he became a doctor and therefore the reason he diagnosed himself with colon cancer as soon as he did was that he had seen a solar eclipse in New York City when he was 10 and like just got out of the subway in time to see the sun disappear and it turn into darkness at noon. And like he said, that that experience uh, made him conclusively interested in science, which made him conclusively interested in medicine. And uh, when he talked about this, I mentioned this was when he was getting chemotherapy in mm-hmm. like uh, 2015, uh, that there was a total solar eclipse coming up. And like, would you like to see that? And at first uh, he was like, no, I've already seen it. You know, I don't really care. <laughs> and then as uh, I think he began to realize he was going to have a life after surviving cancer, like bad cancer he shouldn't have survived, like cancer he had a 10% chance of surviving. Uh, he realized, wait a minute, maybe life on the other side of this uh, horrible experience has some content for me. And it's not just waiting for the, the real time I die. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, my family and I decided that we're all going to go as like a, a family vacation to Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah, the heart of the Confederacy. <laughs> yeah, the heart of the Confederacy. <laughs> Your dream vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> barbecue, where the barbecue sauce is white and made of mayonnaise. And it's like sour as shit. So we're, we're going to go to Columbia to watch the sun be destroyed by the moon for two and a half minutes. It's pretty awesome. I'm living particularly dangerously going to Columbia, South Carolina, because this time of year there's like a one in three chance of it being sunny. <laughs> oh, really? It's yeah. rainy in the summer in Columbia? Yeah, or, or like misty or cloudy yeah. or something. Mm. But the whole thing happens very quickly. So clouds, if you have if you have any like weird yeah, like uncertainty, breaks. I think you're going to feel very cheated. Yeah, I, I completely agree. But that's, uh, you know, no one asked to be born. I didn't ask for this total solar eclipse. Yep. And I'm no, well, take- that's the thing. It's not a fucking bullshit lunar yeah, eclipse, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is basically a worthless yeah, yeah. fucking thing I have no interest in. Let me ask you this. The, the Your dad's story, as I try and put myself in his shoes, as you no doubt have, it, it makes me think, ah, the experience of viewing a total solar eclipse must has to, must have to do with the reconciliation of the theoretical and the practical in some way. If that's If it has this science-y upshot for mm-hmm. him. Is that part of the appeal of watching the eclipse? That it's like this system we learned about that seems so abstract is now before us? I mean, uh, when I was talking to him about it, as he was literally getting uh, chemotherapy, like uh, he talked about how having cancer drove home something he hadn't quite expected about the memory of seeing this eclipse in, in Harlem, which was that uh, when he was a kid, he realized that there was a literal celestial mechanics going on over his head where things were mechanically moving in out of phase and every once in a while there was a dramatic like occultation or whatever. And having cancer is very much the same celestial mechanics but applied to the body. And there was something particular to him about feeling caught between those two domains of a celestial mechanics and like a biomechanics and that that's where all of us are, right? Yeah, there's a way in which very, very important and fundamental things are easy to take for granted. Yeah, especially when you and, and you can learn all you want about sickness, and you can learn all you want about orbits and heavenly bodies or whatever. But like when you are healthy, there's a way in which 
illness is not real. And it seems that something about the experience of, the, of seeing a total uh, solar eclipse can wake you up to a realness mm-hmm. about the, about the like, I don't know, the grand scheme of things or something. Yeah, and, and the, the same way. The fact that a total solar eclipse is nothing but a consequence of the celestial mechanics doing its thing, and yet it feels very different from just the revelation of a machine above you, that points to something really important, that uh, it's kind of all about death. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up, that it, when Annie Dillard writes in this essay called Total Eclipse about it, and Total Eclipse that she and her husband experienced in 1979 in Washington State, more than once she seems to basically equate the experience with a kind of like jarring triumph of of non-being over being or of death over life and that part of what is so absurd and thrilling about the experience and scary about the experience is that it just seems all wrong like we've died yeah this is not what living is like this is what death must be like and there's something about being involved in this different strange scale seeing things from a perspective you're not used to but also being affected by like the giant moving shadow Mm -hmm. and the sun disappearing that that perspective is like terrifyingly like seeing things from a timeline that is larger than yourself, which yeah. naturally means death. I've never seen a total solar eclipse in the flesh. And even I know that the people who like scoff at the stories about armies like putting down their arms in ancient Greece when the total solar eclipse happened that they weren't expecting, like people who scoff at that is like bullshit sentimentality or like primitivism or something. Those people really don't know what a total solar eclipse is like. Uh, if you're not expecting it, it's so different from just evening or twilight as to be almost a different kind of darkness. Definitely. Well, and nowadays we've cracked this code and there aren't, <laughs> barring some shit that we don't know about, there's not really unexpected eclipses anymore. Yeah. And yet she still reports, Andy Dillard does, that it, total eclipses are met with hysteria and screaming mm-hmm. by all those sort of observing. Uh, this is one of the things that makes it such an appealing thing to consider in this interesting way. One, the truth is, as much as we've cracked the code on the eclipses or whatever, like <laughs> all of that knowledge is sort of shoplifted by us. We sort of stuffed the the CDs of the eclipse knowledge down our pants, and we're like running out of the Tower Records yeah, yeah. as if we like fucking understand everything. But we do Should not we explain that illusion for people who don't. Oh know yeah, it? there used to be <laughs> tiny mirror pizzas that you had to feed a weird machine to make it sing the music to you. I mean, to various degrees, it's hard to keep all the very basic and unchanging facts about our like celestial milieu straight. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And so we walk around like we understand everything because like the weatherman is going to tell us like, hey, like cover your eyes when you stare at the giant fireball. It's like it's going to be a good time at the fucking eclipse picnic. Now, can we move the eclipse picnic to the following Tuesday? Like I, to me, it just seems like such a great idea to suddenly be like, oh, actually, fuck you. Yeah. You don't have a handle on this thing. You know, this essay actually hit me much like the eclipse hits Annie Dillard, which is to say I had heard of her and I knew she had a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek mm-hmm. that I was supposed to read in high school. It was a part of a creative writing class. And I was like, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek? I'm not going to read that Taffy. That was the name of the teacher. Taffy, I won't wow. read your, I will not read Taffy's book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I thought because, Taffy was like a main slang for no, no, her like name, an uninteresting her, book. Yeah, I had the same thought. 
Yeah. I will not read this Taffy. Her name is Taffy, and she like had beads and stuff. And Wait, her she first name was Taffy. Like, Taffy. Her okay. first name was Taffy. You How many times taffy? do I need to say this? Yeah, I went to a private school. Yeah, where and we called all our teachers by their first name. I knew name. a Taffy. I had a schoolmate named Taffy, but I, the idea that anyone that in wasn't any a position, of, I'm sure it was a nickname. Okay, but for like uh, Taffinia Taffos, I have no I have idea. hunch that this is not where we want to dig in. <laughs> We, in the world of names that we live in, to me, Taffy, as bad as it is, is nothing compared to the weird image of like handing like whatever 17 year old me like Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. This is really going to like help. I just was like, it sounded so like. Sounds like a prairie home companion. Yeah. It yeah. sounded like something like I own a gallery and let's sure. drink tea together. It is, I was like, there's no way this is going to be serious. And then I was reading a like anthology of essays and I was like, Annie Dillard, this is the fucking creek lady. This Taffy's. Taffy's. Taffy, yeah. Thanks, Taffy's Taffy. Dillard. I don't want to read it, but she's a pilgrim to the creek. She's gone to a creek in a meaningful way, Taffy. So when I started reading, I was like, wait. This was the eclipse essay in the book. The eclipse essay in the book. And all of a sudden, I was like when your dad is telling you about it. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's a Monday morning when the eclipse in her essay is. Uh, and she notes a little late in the essay that, oh, yeah, one of the things that she experienced from the mountaintop where they watch this is a uh, row of cars heading between the hills uh, who in the total darkness generated at yeah. the moment of totality had to, of course, to see where they were going, turn their headlights on. Mm -hmm. All right. And she takes this as a sign of, oh, yeah, they're heading the other way. They can't see the eclipse. It just got dark and they turned their headlights on because they're going to work. Yeah, four or five cars pull over, but the commute, she describes the long line, like five mile. Yeah. And, it's, and she doesn't like exactly finish the thought and say to you, like, that's insane that this was a humdrum day for those motorists or whatever. But she does say, like, maybe when the next total eclipse rolls through the Yakima Valley in 2086, maybe employers would give their employees one hour off or whatever. I mean, is there any more like clear sign that you live in a kind of dream world prison nightmare yeah. than the sun is swallowed up by the fucking sky and you're just, oh, better flip the headlights on to make it to fucking work. Yeah, it's an unusually dark thunderhead going across the sky right now. So at the same time, <laughs> like, you know, what is, ex why do we need to peep it exactly? First of all, you can't even really peep it, right? You need special goggles. Which Actually, I don't own. In, during totality, you don't. But. Yeah. No, but I imagine the idea is to watch it. Yeah. Add crests and evanesce. Yeah. Then you need welding glasses. Yeah. And I don't know. So if I didn't have those at the ready, I might just be like, no, I'm not going to fucking look at it. This is the thing is what is going to be interesting. I do not think it's that interesting that you're going to be able to like get a peek at the corona, which normally like you can't. It's the fact that this is a phenomenon that comes about only in these weird little bands most of the time it's out in the ocean it's it's not accessible all the time and yet it's been around part of the human experience yeah. has to do with reckoning with the shit in the sky that this is part of like you know how who knows how much of like written language is, is because we needed calendars and like this is fucking been important shit and that what I want to observe more than anything is, is sort of how I feel myself reacting to this strange mm -hmm. sight when when the sun disappears during the day and you the wind comes and it's colder or whatever right. that moment i you are, have a chance to not just like get in touch with the celestial bodies but to like get in touch with fucking all the people who've like looked at the sky yeah yeah that, so that's a good argument to sort of take it in 
Yeah, and there's also something about uh, witnessing an event that would happen without you that cannot be influenced by uh, the human desire for it to happen at a more convenient time or place, right. which is, makes it almost unlike literally every yeah, other right. human event. Can't be put off or yeah. postponed due to rain. A total solar eclipse doesn't care about you, and it really can't be ignored. Even the people who weren't looking at it had to turn their headlights That's on. That's right. The idea of the stars suddenly appearing, too, waking you up to the fact that, like, they're oh, always yeah, there. They're always there. Not in, like, the night way, but, like, yeah. someone, it's like someone flipping on the space light. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Daring of, like, boom, now, like, that blue roof is clear and you can see all the shit. But see, like, that's what's funny about a lunar eclipse is like, what are you supposed to be grateful for when the Earth, like, is in between the sun and the moon? And, like, there, hey, look, we can confirm the Earth is real, but there's a shadow on the moon. As opposed to, hey, like, you should just know that the positioning of the sun matters a lot because here's what it's like gone. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, we don't walk around every moment with some kind of working sense of the sphericity of this thing that we're on, the Earth. True. And we don't think of it as moving, hurtling through space either. And you ha sort of have to come to grips with both of those in facts the in the image up. on the moon. But it's, it's not all, a threat. It's, yeah, that's right. Is the thing that's so affecting simply the blockage of the sun, like the fact that the sun is going to be blocked seems like one thing. Like part of what's happening that seems so amazing is that the ratios and distances yeah. have worked out such that we're, it's like a, a weird fit is occurring, right. right? There is a mystical and accidental truth that the, that the moon and sun have roughly the same apparent, apparent circumference from the earth. In fact, the sun's a tiny bit bigger. That's why you see the ring that she talks about. But coming to, coming face to face with those mystical facts. Yeah, and it's it's easy to... Forget about the fact that what's really happening is that a gigantic shadow the size of the moon is racing across the earth at whatever, 1,800 miles an hour, and you're spending at, at most two minutes and 35 seconds inside of that shadow as it passes over you. Is the reason why I can't look at the motherfucking eclipse with my bare eyes the same reason why I can't look at the sun yes. with my bare eyes? I mean, I really think that some of the talk of you can't look at it. I saw like articles with just like fucking urgent headlines, like some of these eclipse glasses on Amazon are like not legit. Like with such yeah. like, rather than like actually make an attempt to like have an interesting thought about the eclipse, we're like, hey, don't stare at the fucking blinding yeah. light. Why is that so emphasized? I mean, uh, I think because the average person might willingly blind themselves just because somebody said, hey, the sun's going to be doing something weird today. Why would why would I go blind? Well, because the sun is so incredibly bright that even when it's 93% covered by the moon, it's still bright enough to do permanent damage to your eyes. If I if look you, at it for if long you look enough. at it, yeah. But I'll feel pain and shit. No, you won't. Why not? It doesn't hurt. There are no nerve endings that receive pain on the retina. You can do damage before it's painful. I guess that has to be true for anyone to have ever gotten a bee in their bonnet about these warnings. <laughs> There's just a way in which we are so afraid, I think, to, to confront things. And we want to make sure we have everything lined up. And that if you're going to talk about the eclipse, you immediately are like, now what? what's our liability here? Yeah. And if I don't want to sort of like manage all my tasks on that morning... Right, if I like actually like really talk myself out of pulling over or finding a hilltop, one thing I could say to myself is like, well, I can't even look at it anyway, right? Yeah, that like, actually, you know, who knows what damage I'm avoiding? Smart, old smart Eric avoiding I mean, the eclipse. Yeah, like the ironic part is that then you would be exactly the person. That I don't give a shit if you blind yourself. 
Like if 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 we can imagine a different society where rather than being like, hey, hey, careful with your, you gotta get those good shades, all right? Make sure you double check the Amazon reviews for your eclipse glasses. You can imagine a society where it's like. Hey, even if you're not uh, religious, we've decided the federal government's going to yeah, be closed yeah. that day. Sure. If we take snow days, we can take a yeah, day exactly. for this. Like, you know, you don't have to necessarily drive, but at least take a minute to think about all of the things that are sort of greater than yourself and try, and try and have a moment to sort of think about what's out there. Yeah. <laughs> that you have your own darkness coming, motherfucker. Yeah. You know? Crack open a Pepsi and think about death. In exactly the same way, it's easy to not think about the earth spinning and the sun being the one who moves when you see the sun come up and then go down. It's also easy uh, by the light of the sun and by analogy, the light of like whatever you think human reason is, to think in a way that has no correlation to the actual facts of the matter, right? And there's something about the sun going out, however momentarily, that would make you reflect on this fact that the way you think things are and the way things make sense to you, not the only way. In fact, probably the wrong way. Right. I actually, one of the reasons I don't love the Eclipse Chaser stories is I think it's sort of secretly like part of this you can have it all consumerist like mindset of just like, hey, you're probably going to fucking be commuting or whatever. But like, don't worry. Like during retirement, if you feel like it, you can just fly off to Czechoslovakia. This guy's seen 30. This guy's seen 25. And the reality is that while there is some kind of solar eclipse like every year or whatever, like it's almost never where you are. Right. And it's, so the chances of getting to be in that path are small. So weirdly, you can sort of tell yourself like, oh, I'll go to the next one and you, and you just might miss it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, also, life is in some like certain thing where you get tomorrow or whatever. Yeah, but even right. more than that, like if it happens to be showing up, that yeah. seems worth noting. And I hate that our instinct is like cover up your eyes and don't worry, there are people who have seen so many. Although, to hear them tell it, it doesn't matter how prepared you are or how much of an eclipse junkie you are. When you're actually there, something definitely happens to you that you're still not expecting, no matter how many times you've seen it. And that, is that something, something that you imagine, like, enriches your life? Is it, like, the more you get of them? The, like, the people who've seen 16 eclipses, <laughs> are they 16 times as better off as someone who's only seen one? I think they're all different. That's my impression. Yeah, I think that's my impression. It's not what's all, all the eclipses are different. Each yeah. of the times. How could that be in some, in some way? Well, From I, a human perspective, like where I am and who I'm with, is that what they mean? Yes, but I think all of those things come into play. It's a, very, it's a weird... You, just like sunsets are sort of all yeah. kind of different or whatever, that they, they you'd be accessing the same truth in different ways. Or I, I mean, it's all speculative. No, yeah. But part of what I'm wondering is just how an eclipse changes a person. But maybe I'll just have to follow up with you on the 22nd <laughs> or whatever. I'll be dead. 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 Dead.
feel like in an America that's missing serious public intellectuals, like we end up looking around like, well, who can, does anyone have opinions on how we're doing, how things are going or whatever? And we like, this is part of the reason I think that on this podcast, we end up talking about Silicon Valley as much as we do is that these are people who consider themselves to be idea havers, people with something to say about not just the present, but the future. Elon Musk is willing to answer when he says like, I think what's most important is, uh, making sure there's a good future for AI. What he, he doesn't mean like for me. He, he's right. literally talking about for humanity, what's most important. A lot of the time, I think, he's yeah. talking about humanity. And almost, that is not something very many people have the balls to do anymore. Right. You know? I, I don't think most people understand just how quickly machine intelligence is advancing. It's much faster than almost anyone realizes, even within Silicon Valley, and certainly outside Silicon Valley, people really have no idea. Um, so Why is that dangerous? It's Walter Isaacson. I mean... Interesting person, too. If, if, there's, if there's a superintelligent, particularly if it's engaged in recursive self-improvement, if there's some digital superintelligence um, and its optimization or utility function um, is something that's detrimental to humanity, then it will have a very bad effect. Um, you know, if you give it the control over something. Like getting rid of spam email or something. And it's like, concludes, well, the best way to get rid of spam is to get rid of humans. R- right. You know? That's iRobot. That's uh, the iRobot. Why scenario. would we lose... The source c- of all spam. If I said I that, that would be the dumbest thing in the world, right? But why would we lose control over our machines? There are no data points showing that, that, that our connection to machine has ever been loosened. Uh, actually, I think... The thing to do would be to plot the progress of digital intelligence versus time, and and then to you know, maybe curve fit or extrapolate that progress uh, and see where that leads. Um, but you're talking about machines that are not just intelligent but have intentionality. Is that right? They have the intention of their utility function, um, which, which will is what be we programmed in, right? Yes. Okay. But it can have unintended consequences. The spam example is so stupid because the super intelligent machine program with a utility function that equals destroy all spam, and somehow it decides, even if it decides, well, humans are the source of spam, I should stop trying to keep up with the spam and just kill the humans. How? With lasers that yeah, I also yeah. have I'm by accident? Like, make, yeah. like fill their apartments with printer paper or printed out <laughs> spam and they're going to suffocate like a, like rose petals at a Roman wedding or when I say I think he's bluffing it just really does not seem like he has it he's yeah. like you know what would be great is if you could graph versus time how smart the AI is getting yeah. He literally suggests that to Walter Isaacson. He's there's like, like, that's the graph you'd need. The, one of the weird things about this guy is when you start looking into him, there's like eight on d- eight different issues. He says like 40 years ago, uh, we had Pong and today we have like amazing gaming. And it's like, that's why we're in a simulation. And that's why like, we got to go to space. Yeah, yeah. That's like, why- this fucking guy who, who is allegedly uh, one of the smartest entrepreneurs on planet earth thinks that if, a the graph of something's progress increases, it's always going to increase. It's like shit, I I know how to read these charts that no one else does. It's like he's never seen a chart where something increases exponentially at first and then levels off. I mean, also it begs the question entirely. If we knew how to quantify the smartness of the AI, yeah. this would all be not a problem anyway. But you're yeah. just like, if you gotta you graph the smartness of the AI against time, see how fast it's going. Yeah. 
What? The smartness of the AI is the very thing you mean to warn us about. The thing that's hard to yeah, exactly. sort of quantify. Isn't this what makes Elon Musk uh, offensive in some way? There's something about his general sort of approach that suggests to me he believes in his own death, like less than anybody. And that he thinks he can skip ahead to solve the problem of like, did you know in a billion years, the Earth's crust is going to get like singed off and we've got to be ready. We got to be, we got to get life on multiple planets. And it's like, dude, you don't understand life fucking here and now in your house. What are you talking about? Yeah. When he's like, innovation is like a powerful force and like, yeah, it's true. We don't know, but we'll figure out how to like, like breathe on Mars or whatever. Like just let us, let me get there and then we'll figure it all out because the powerful spirit of scientific discovery has led us to all these um, discoveries in the past. And we figured out all sorts of things that were mysteries at one time. Once you admit that a lot of our figurings out, were actually sort of working solutions that have brought much death and destruction on the way. Yeah. Then that becomes less powerful. Like it's not that you will figure everything out in a pinch engineering community is that you'll figure out some working solution that won't kill us right away, but might, it turns out as fossil fuels have taught us, kill us very, very deliberately. It's all bridge loans. It's all bridge loans. Yeah. Yeah. That gets us to the next loan. Right. And I guess that's the other thing that's offensive about this guy. There's a way in which this guy wants to say, I'm an engineer, I'm like a tech guy, but really his superpower is money. Yeah. This is the thing that Elon Musk, I think, capitalizes on. It's maybe his only insight, whether or not he knows it or not. It's that rich just equals cool in America. Mm -hmm. And yet he wants to talk to us like his is like the scientific brain that respects the scientific process. But it's like, really, you're more of a marketer. Yeah, I think he's a pretty lightweight like deep thinker when he really gets down to it. Yeah. What I mean, do you want to try and make sense of this quote about the, what he thinks is the strongest argument for us probably being in a simulation? Yeah. Did you read this? A uh, direct quote. The strongest argument for us probably being in a simulation, I think, is the following. 40 years ago, we had Pong, two rectangles and a dot. That's where we were. Now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. And soon we'll have virtual reality. We'll have augmented reality. If you assume any rate of improvement at all, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality. Just indistinguishable. Therefore, that's why we are living in a simulation. Yeah, that's, first off, that isn't an argument. That's yeah. a, it's half a story. Right. But if you finish his story, then you could make an argument. I th- this is my understanding. My understanding, and I, I watched a two-minute Vox video, which is maybe even dumber than the argument <laughs> itself. But so, so the argument is somehow like, all right, I'm going to tell you a story, and it's about improving Pong and how it ends up being is as these things keep improving over enough time, Eric, in yeah. like a million years. Yeah. Like, do you know how fucking good video games are now compared to Mortal Kombat or whatever? Yeah. In a million years, video games are going to be exactly as good as reality. They'll be simulating reality, every detail of reality in every respect. The video game characters will themselves have brains with, like, their synapses firing, and they'll be able to, like, set up their own synapses, and there'll be this huge, this world will be completely filled with so many simulations that are indistinguishable, and at that moment, when you look around and you say, now, which thing is real, you know? do you think we're really in that place that's real now? We probably are just in a simulation. Set right. uh, 2017, man. So this is, what are the Descartes. Chances? This is the day Descartes can't get out of his head 
problem. Like the, the equivocation he's making is that the thing that makes video games so cool is nothing like the thing that makes life life. Yeah, and, and like uh, there's something perverse to me about the fact that this does not like snuff out his ardor to change this simulated world, right? What's the point? <laughs> why why would you want to affect change in to, a world to win? Maybe. To win what? The game? The game? Like, 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 to like, meet that architect in the white room? But like, wh- why, why the fuck would the architect care whether you can go to Mars? Like, um, Musk has held up as this, like, thought leader or something, and he's, po- like, saying this, why? What, what, yeah. what purpose can it serve other than to identify Musk as the smart one whom no one could ever possibly bully or shove down a stairwell or beat into unconsciousness? Mr. Musk, what are, you, what are, the, what are the fundamental Mr. truths Musk. you Mr. want Musk. to reveal? <laughs> Mr. Musk, Mr. Musk, <laughs> tell me a truth. It's like, imagine a Apple-less Steve Jobs. What a nightmare. And Steve Jobs was like enormously improved by taking a couple hits of acid. Musk doesn't seem like the, the drug guy. That's yeah, it. And, ag- and again, like, I think there's a Steve Jobs quote like, 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 death is like life's like change agent or whatever. Like, he wasn't that deep. He was selling consumer electronics yeah. primarily. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a real possibility that this guy is kind of a, a fucking parasite, that he's not life bringing to, you to these this issues. Yeah. That he is, that he, what he's doing is actually sucking the energy. Instead of our putting together the will to say, we do need to do shit in space, this does fucking matter instead of like actually uh like engaging with you know renewable energy and solar and all that we somehow have this like sort of cheap like steve Jobs type who's like no no i've figured out how to like make it a profit uh he's a guy who's animated by solving engineering problems as opposed to doing something because it's worthwhile right? i would actually like to see him solve an engineering problem because i wonder if he's not just motivated by being a sort of cryptic humble visionary figure for grander dreams than Steve. Because I don't even, I mean, when he starts talking about graphing the curve, what? <laughs> like, dude, that's not an interesting math problem you just described. It's an yeah. impossible restatement of the thing that you are warning us against. Yeah. There's a part in this article where we're dealing with how he's going to take us to fucking Mars. It's the one in um, Eon. There's a weird point where he starts explaining like logistical difficulties of Go, of setting up a new colony on Mars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's about, yeah. Look, I asked Musk how quickly a Mars colony could grow to a million people. Quote, excluding organic growth, if you could take 100 people at a time, you would need 10,000 trips to get a million people, he said. But you'd also need a lot of cargo to support those people. In fact, your cargo to person ratio is going to be quite high. It would probably be 10 cargo trips for every human trip. So more like 100,000 trips. And we're talking 100,000 trips of a giant spaceship. It's all factors of 10. What? He to Mars, man? But I'm just saying, like, he's <laughs> yeah. put numbers there with the literally the minimal amount of effort to make them into numbers. I know, and if that's not a plan, he's like, I'm saying giant spaceship. Right. He's telling you, like, boy, can I, am I not going to deliver on this? It, like, at that exact moment, he's just like, he's like, and, you know, the cargo, you got to think, 10 to 1 cargo ratio. <laughs> it's like, you're just bluffing, and you're bluffing the wrong way. Like, how is this fooling people? I don't think I have good dreams, honestly. I'm sure I have good dreams sometimes, but I don't seem to remember the good dreams. Um, The ones that I remember are the nightmares. (laughs) 
I can not only imagine artificial intelligence evolving spontaneously on the internet, but I can't tell you that it hasn't happened already. I can. Uh, because who knows what they'd be up to? It, it wouldn't necessarily reveal itself to us. I think that the biggest risk is not that the AI will develop a will of its own, but rather that it will follow the will of people that establish its utility function or its optimization function. Buzz and that rocks. optimization function, if it is uh, not well thought out, I mean, even if it's relatively, if its intent is benign, it could have quite bad, uh, quite a bad outcome. For example, um, if you were a hedge fund or a private equity fund, and you said, well, uh, all I want my AI to do is maximize the value of my portfolio, then it, the AI could decide, well, the best way to do that is to uh, short consumer stocks, go along defense stocks, and start a war. Because uh, it has the ability to start a war. Bad. Yeah, someone gave it that ability yeah. for some reason. It just drives me crazy because I understand the initial part of his point. Why not choose a example that is more nuanced, <laughs> that would require, that would feel more believable? I really yeah, don't think he it's, has it's, it. it's because he's an idiot, fundamentally. Who has uh, a certain amount of technical knowledge and like workflow experience, yeah. but cannot think, doesn't right. know yeah. how to workflow think. Workflow experience is exactly yeah. right. Like, this could, is why he he can't. If you said, "What do you mean by optimization function?" I think you just give you an example or say the other phrase that he uses, like yeah. I, utility, utility function. function. Yeah, I cast utility function. But his example, he only told the AI uh, maximize my portfolio, which by the way is bad. <laughs> That's <laughs> horrible, and he forgot to include the. Don't start a war yeah, limitation. That's, right. that's exactly right. Christ. I mean, it, this is war games again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, only to somebody as stupid as Elon Musk is a world imaginable in which a stock market robot has also the controls to the Pentagon, right? Correct. <laughs> or unless it's going to like use stocks to communicate. Like, how, how is it going to start gonna, like, a war it's with gonna, stocks? It's going to like spell out in stock <laughs> trades, like, "Hey, you at your desk, like, don't you hate the Mongolians? You should bomb Mongolia." Also, you know what's funny about his example is, uh, who cares if it shorted consumer stocks? It started a war and it went long on on defense stocks. Like, it's like my Pepsi's way down. God damn it! Chipotle's are closing all over the country. And so, what do you conclude? Why did he start with short consumer stocks? It's because he's like. Coming up with it, right? Yeah. right. He's, he doesn't exactly have it. Yeah, he's a schmuck. Well, and he's fooled a lot of people. He made his fortune with PayPal. After setbacks, he's now successfully launching rockets. PayPal. He made his fortune with PayPal. For the first time in the history of Earth, in four and a half billion years, the window of possibility has opened for us to extend life to another planet. I think it's important for us to take advantage of that window while it is open and to, to establish life on another planet in the solar system, uh, just in case something goes wrong with, with Earth. Um, and, uh, you know, it could be, there could be either a natural or man-made uh, disaster uh, that knocks the technology level below that which is where it is possible to to travel to another planet. The key to establishing a self-sustaining civilization is getting the cost uh, per unit mass low enough that there's an intersection of sets. 
the set of people that wish to uh, move to Mars theory. and the set of people that can afford to move to Mars, uh, inclusive of government aid. It's like an Excel I mean, right now, guy. We can't even get one person to Mars. So clearly, I, mean, I would come along. I wouldn't have a we problem. Know. We know, Werner. One way ticket. That sounds great. Um, I'd be your candidate. Okay. Um, but I, I, I do think we'll we'll want to uh, offer round trips because uh, a lot more people will be willing to go if they think that if they don't like it, if they, they can come think. back. It seems like a very. Uh, a very strange and somewhat disturbing coincidence that when we look out at it, our like, you know, extremely profitable technical sector, and we we look at these like big sort of icons or figures of of the tech industry, all of them or lots of them seem to have these weird fantasies about running away from the rest of us or from the earth. They want to make fake islands in the ocean or fake islands in space. It all seems to be part of some market-driven libertarian space exodus or something. Where the fuck does that come from? Why are the people who sell us these like technical gadgets like seem to be really driven to our find a new home for humanity or whatever? Like... I don't think it's obvious that that needs to be the case. So there's Virgin Galactic, that's Richard Branson. There's uh, Blue Origin, that's Jeff Bezos. There's SpaceX, that's Elon Musk. Whatever they're saying about why they're doing this, like we want to get off the Earth because that's the solution to uh, environmental catastrophes, to move the industrial base of Earth off Earth and you know zone Earth residential or whatever. Uh, Bezos literally said that. Like wh- whatever they they claim the benefit of it, like there's a a kind of idiotic glee in being the first billionaire to replace what it took NASA to do the first time, to like get onto another celestial body. And like that, I don't think that can be separated uh, or even called the lesser of the two motivations when you compare it to like saving the earth from itself or its people. Yeah. There's also like an aspect of it where it becomes space becomes just another differentiator uh, just another thing for like the elite wealthy people to sort of have that not everybody does whereas saving the planet will always help everybody seems very unlikely if we're unable to get things going in the right direction here on earth that the next place is going to go well yeah there's something very characteristically silicon valley uh to like move laterally and say well earth is uh, it's going to sort itself out or it's not might as well get off the earth in case they don't fix it well, Elon's argument was we're, there's a window, right? Yeah, so, he's so he says, let's just do it now because we're in the window. Fine about your on-Earth solutions, but my role here is to take advantage of this window. The thing about the window image is it's, it's, this is a, you know, this super billionaire, famous like uh, Iron Man for America or whatever. Why don't you focus on keeping the window open? You know what I mean? Rather than being like, that window could shut and we could have that yeah. cataclysm that's going well, like, mean, to set us way back. He's like, well, look at my fucking battery plant with solar power and I'm building you the tube spaceship, the fr- right? So sure. in other words, he's got enough cover for his tracks. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is uh, this is one of the questions I have, though, is about is in terms of this vision, what does it mean about your responsibility to like, I don't know, it, it hints to me that the, uh, the least the possibility that what the super rich really think is that Earth isn't going to make it because of all these like, you know, destructive poor people, the rabble that actually, if you could just have the good, rich, successful people yeah. on some other location, everything yeah. will be great. And this is, this is the plot of Atlas Shrugged. Right. Yeah. We just are, are going off planet as opposed to offshore. <laughs> yeah. When Atlas Shrugged, it, it's like sprung the, the billionaires off the, off the planet out yeah. into space where they're safe. 
Yeah. I mean, one thing that does not seem to be among the narratives of SpaceX or Blue Origin, it, 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 no one seems to be talking about like like uh, doing all this science and figuring out like no one is trying to intrigue you to their project right. uh, via the allure of the mysteries that are still yeah. extant in, in outer space. Yeah, yeah. This, there's, a, there's a characteristic feeling to human exploration, whether it's scientific or like a physical journey to the moon or whatever. And then there's the feeling that all these fucking private space companies have, which is not exploration, but is escape. And exploration and escape are moral opposites of each other. Yeah. And you can explore for everybody, but you can't really escape for everybody. And there's this very interesting way in which Elon Musk, when he starts talking about like life becoming multi-planetary and like, hey, something could happen to the Earth. We got to get like life on Mars. It sounds like he sort of thinks like we can escape for everybody. We could just need enough people so that humanity can go on. And yeah. I just don't think that's really the right. Yeah. One of the advantages of being like a fucking weirdo luminary, like building your shit out in the desert, is that you don't have to answer any of those yeah. questions like you're you're at the beginning stages of something that's so far uh, fetched in, in a certain way and so far from being a logistical problem yet all those questions get deferred and so you're like what you're doing is you're creating the situation where you become this like lord creator of the system where not until it is built where people will even be able to ask like okay well how are you going to determine yeah, why right. we could ask why build this thing if you're going to have to lottery out human beings in yeah. any fashion right perhaps we would make the judgment it's not worth building yeah. therefore yeah. but they do not want to hear that answer so they defer those questions yeah and, and the reason it's different from what nasa was doing is that nasa was the organ of a democratically elected government and any private company especially one where the ceo owns uh, 78% of the voting stock, like Elon does with SpaceX, that's a totalitarian society. What he says goes. Handing the one of the avenues of survival to humanity to a totalitarian dictator like that is a deeply flawed and stupid idea. It goes against everything that the last 350 years of human development and democratic rule has been about. And, that, and, and the fact that the federal government is handing him the keys to do that is uh, a really excellent piece of evidence for how far the federal government as an idea has fallen and how devalued it has become. In order to be a private space company, you need to rely on the government infrastructure for space travel yes. that exists. Yeah. There's the, all sorts of NASA facilities and manpower yeah, and more, technology. More evidence of the parasitism at work. Yeah, so I, but part of me wants to ask, like, is this appealing to the government because it's a new private-public partnership? Is it appealing to the government because they just don't have to fill NASA's budget with as many billions as they would before? Or were they kind of bullied by this privateer? into this partnership. I think they sort of were pre-bullied by a anti-government, anti-sort of common good mindset, especially in America, and where you end up thinking, like, no one even cares about space anymore. They only care about goddamn tax cuts or something. And then this guy comes along and says, I'm going to get them excited about space, except it's, you know, very sort of, uh, you know, private company-driven vision of space. And you still end up saying, if you're NASA, like, well, we'll take it. Yeah. You know, it's at least it's still space, but the idea that that this is actually should be a common mission right. that, that we're all invested in. There are going to be all kinds of things I don't understand that Elon Musk is going to get to decide to make proprietary or like sort of deal himself in. Yeah. If you let him be the guy who's organizing our like cargo trips to the space station, he's going to be the guy designing the next rockets. I just think like... 
where everything's going to be a little more appley and a little less uh, highway system-y. NASA really doesn't have that much in the pipeline uh, in terms of prestige projects. Like shit like Cassini that arrived at Saturn 11 years ago, uh, it had been in the works for 15 years before that. And that was like, that was literally the last billion dollar space project that NASA was involved in. And everything has been extremely cut rate since then. Um, like the the New Horizons probe that went to, to Pluto was originally a much more elaborate uh, design and they chose it because it was the cheaper version. We and, put a rover on Mars not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, we put a rover on Mars because NASA was so embarrassed that they couldn't put a person there that they decided to send a fucking robot. This, this all goes back to the to the Vietnam War. The, the Vietnam War siphoned so much money away from this large, like, 50-year space plan that NASA had in the 60s, where there was going to be a permanent moon colony, a, an outpost on Mars. All of it got canceled because Nixon and LBJ couldn't control Vietnam. And what we have now, what we think of as our, as our space program, the shuttle, all that shit, that's NASA on life support, and it has been for the last 40 years. Right. It would be It would be difficult to count the number of things that the project of putting people on the moon generated as ancillary like productions, right? You know, oh, yeah. Everything from like perfecting Velcro to fucking Teflon to, right, right. Uh, and like none of that is happening, right? There's, there's no huge investment in basic research because it's run like a private company, but it is a private company. They're trying to thread the needle and find the one quickest, cheapest way to achieve the end. Right. And uh, it's, it would be, a remarkable thing, so remarkable it makes me suspicious as to whether it would ever actually, ever actually happen for a private company to essentially found a kind of government on a f- celestial body that has no te- that has no tether of any kind to capitalism as we understand it. The, the the system in which the project was conceived. This is like the twentieth century fallacy. I feel like all kinds of people are under the impression that everything that happened between like nineteen twenty and like two thousand is just destiny. It's like, yeah. oh boy, capital you know, capitalism does nothing but thrive and thrive. It's just a carrot to keep the mule like moving. It's like we aren't gonna have to fix Earth. But keep working hard and you can get off Earth right. too or something. It's a it's a bedtime story or something like that. And if you look at the Earth's dysfunction, a, a response is is not like, hey, I'm Elon Musk. I'm half Democrat. I'm half Republican Literally. and I'm working on getting people off the planet. Like a much more appropriate response would be to be like, you know, trying to steer society in a more productive direction. To co-opt some of the original NASA (laughs) magic. But like to steer society in a productive direction, you're talking about government, right? Yes. That's what a government does. This is the danger. The people should see the government as the sort of sword they wield to solve their problems. The people shouldn't say like, boy, a few of us people for their own profit should invent businesses that solve our collective problems. That's not a good idea. No. What role ever did the space program play? I think is a question that like we all have to sort of have been asking ourselves since we who were born after the moon landing sort of tried to piece this together. Like, yeah, it does inspire us, but it's not the Cold War anymore. This doesn't seem like a victory exactly in the same way that I think it once did, we're told it once did. Because like a victory for America when we go up there. I, I have a, a, a profound belief about what the space program was doing. And it doesn't really revolve around uh, America trying to plant a flag on the concept of science, right? And like knock the Soviet flag yeah, off, yeah, yeah. right? That like the reason that the federal government was spending 6% of the budget every year trying to put people on the moon 
had nothing to do with the Cold War, had nothing to do with patriotism, had nothing to do with the American economy, and had everything to do with uh, a spiritual attraction that the human race experiences towards exploration and towards whatever it is that lies beyond whatever the horizon happens to be. And this was like a spiritual attraction and a force that worked on the federal government at an extremely high level and which propelled 14 guys to the surface of the moon where every single fucking one of them came back irrevocably changed. That's not a result that is to me explicable by any amount of saber rattling or patriotic bumbo jumbo or even the desire to expand science by doing basic research about how to get to the fucking moon. That's uh, something which is being animated by an extremely deep aspect of being human, one that only accidentally took the form of a gigantic federal uh, giveaway to defense and aerospace manufacturers. But do you see it as sort of almost like a near-death experience, like a last sort of flourishing of the human spirit before uh, Reagan or something? Like, why do you think it goes away? I think it was uh, a kind of peak moment for this like Rooseveltian idea of what the government was supposed to be, that the government was was supposed to take care of its people. And part of that taking care meant uh, the government as the like sum of all people and their hopes, experiencing the spiritual in a way that uh, had never been done before. I mean in church on Sundays? Or? I mean in uh, trying to actualize the feeling you get when you look at the moon or through a telescope or whatever. Like, it's one thing to observe that shit. It's another thing to go there. And the government, for whatever reason, took it upon itself to undertake that, for lack of a better term, spiritual journey. I think you could make an argument. Because there's no other reason to go to the fucking moon. You can beat the Russians, but that's like a sham reason. I think know? there's so much turmoil and change that you can make an argument that, that uh, the sort of better angels of our nature were, in a weird way focused during the 60s yeah. on that one like productive aspect of government that we as a society sort of as we we're struggling with so much else sort of hope to get there and then in some way weren't able to continue that drive weren't yeah. able to I'm even, I mean to even be suggesting that perhaps the very character that Nick is articulating of the purpose of going and putting men on the moon might be something that we decided uh, oughtn't be given anymore to the American people that we shouldn't like sort of fuel this idea that you can look up at the moon as did all of your forebears and know now that like man has gotten there. Maybe in fact we should redirect our <laughs> spiritual resources, right? Like let's let's get real Protestant with this and let's talk about their spiritual fulfillment that you get through your labor and through your like operational religion and right. I mean, like if we're if we're saying like in Reagan's America, why did we not find a place for a thriving, boisterous space program anymore? I mean to suggest a subversive evangelical reason why perhaps not. And, and I, so it's no harm, no foul if Elon wants to play around, but it's not something that we, the government, are going to sort of use to captivate and inspire and nourish the people. The federal government has been so thoroughly abused by the idea that it's terrible and bloated and right. spiritual, spiritually deadening to its populace that That's right. it uh, began to believe the lies that were told about it. In fact, it. You can, if frivolity and waste is spiritually deadening to the American citizen, then NASA 
paradoxically becomes this like big drain on the spiritual yeah. health yeah. of America, right? Or and if you just want if you want the government to do less and you want to spread the notion that you know business always is better, then NASA is this god damn like fucking nail in your paw or something yeah. because it keeps doing stuff that we can't figure out how to do any other way and your dream would be to convince people that it's sort of a waste and then when Elon Musk comes around it doesn't bring you any closer to getting back to the that sort of spiritual quest no in it's fact, a step in the opposite direction absolutely see it's just more proof that if you really want to get back to the moon you're going to do it through good old American business which is which is terrifying how much did the how much money I wonder did the astronauts bring with them to the moon? Do they have cash in their in their pockets? <laughs> and did and were we paying them salaries during the trip? Were they getting an hourly? Were they getting an hourly rate? <laughs> and the price tag that the American people paid did was that an investment that we should be getting yeah. back? And something? I just sometimes I worry we didn't worry we didn't work out the economics well enough on that yeah. moon trip. The uh, brave oil riggers who broke up that asteroid from the surface. <laughs> Right. They were a good investment. Then we decided they didn't have to pay taxes, right? Didn't Billy, yeah. Billy Bob got the okay? Yeah, and Steve, Steve Buscemi got to find out who killed JFK. I would have yeah. loved, by the way, to have been in that negotiation when they were like, <laughs> "We don't want to pay taxes anymore," yeah. and be like, "You won't have to when we all fucking die <laughs> because that asteroid is coming right here to blow up your fucking home too." How goddamn dare you? Fuck you. Guess what? We're not going to let you go to space, even if Elon wants to fly you up there to fix it. Fuck you. Your little tax demand, your lack of understanding of the common good. You're going to sit here and listen to a horrible Aerosmith song. We're shooting up any fucking spaceships that try and go and save. The Earth is dead now because you wanted to fucking get one more round of tax cuts, you pieces of shit. You want to know who killed JFK? You killed JFK. You killed fucking Bloods all over your hands. Did we all we all liked that documentary? That get thumbs up. Yeah, thumbs up all around. Yeah, I liked it a lot. 
for all mankind from 1989. Music by Brian Eno. That music is like like if you died and got in the elevator on the way to like find out what happens, you might get that music. If you died and got into the elevator to find out what happens? Yeah, like a waiting room for metaphysical revelation might feature that music in a little fog. One of the things that's interesting about this documentary, I thought, was that it doesn't seem like this footage comes from a humanitarian, like, artistic... No, it's uh, purely ambition. technical footage. It's all technical footage, and, and, like, a lot of it is just actual mission discussion that's recorded, and then later interviews... And then you add Brian Eno and somehow you get art. Until I watched that documentary, I don't think I ever really felt in my bones what it meant that we'd gone to the moon. Yeah, now why is that exactly? Like we have like footage from the actual journeys being interposed creatively with astronauts when they've had a little time to sit and ruminate with this for many years and develop a sort of more spiritual perhaps or at least more poetic sense of their experience. So is it... If it were just the footage, would it be just as good? Because part of my marvel at it is that I had just never seen this footage before and I sort of couldn't believe it existed. In fact, I would go even farther and say I felt like I never really had interacted with this the history of this moon stuff. Like it feels to me like you hear the one giant like leap for mankind or whatever. It's very different to sort of sit there and spend two hours looking at images and sort of thinking about like these people aren't, they left the earth. Everyone has always been here and they weren't here anymore. It's like, and they jumble up effectively in the documentary, the exact who is from what mission yeah. They, yeah. in a way that lets you, you get over the facts. Exactly. And just get into sort of the meaning of it because they really do want it to be for all mankind. So I feel like they like embrace the idea that you're not seeing the face necessarily. But there's like a lot of goofiness in these guys. They're like jumping around, laughing and skipping. I don't know. Having if goofy, fun. Yeah. I would say goofy. I would say joyous and sort of. Yeah, if yeah. you if you mean to, uh, like I would say silly. I think as opposed silly. to goofy because I definitely wasn't laughing at them. That's right. As sure. if they're fools. Yeah, but it's not what you expect at all from astronauts. Yeah, so what do you, I mean, what do you make of all that? They have a casual, mischievous side and and react like real human beings much more than I expected. You also get to hear from, like, the the third men on all these missions, the guy who doesn't get to go on the moon, but yeah. he gets to, like, stay in the command, command module in orbit or whatever. That And it, it, unfailingly, they are disappointed, <laughs> as yeah. I always imagine them to be. When you imagine being these people actually like sleeping on the moon or somebody being alone, the other two guys leaving, that like terror that puts like a shiver in my bones. The idea of being out like orbiting the moon by yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. freaks and, me out. And that the guy who's in the command module is certifiably the human person who has been the most distant from any other human person ever. I remember hearing some story about the reason Neil Armstrong was chosen as the guy who would pilot the LEM, like the lander was that lots of people train for it. And the way they did is they sit you on top of a jet engine that's pointed directly down. And the jet engine is kind of levitating this weird spidery-looking simulator that actually flies on an airstrip somewhere. And it's meant to provide enough thrust to simulate the gravity of the moon, right? So he has to practice being able to land something vertically in a reduced gravity, right? And... uh, he gets into trouble and has to eject from this thing, you know, two seconds before it explodes in a fireball. 
And the criterion for picking him came down to like he waited a long time before he ejected. He wasn't three seconds before, yeah, he was yeah, two yeah. seconds before. And like, in, indeed, like when Apollo 11 comes to land, they overshoot their like landing zone. Like they had done surveying photographs with an unmanned satellite to see like where's, where's a good place to land. And the lamb overshoots this and ends up in this very like boulder strewn area that'd be very dangerous to land in. And so Armstrong has to use way, way more time to find a suitable landing spot than they had predicted. That that seems like an important characteristic when it comes to like typifying these people, that they're willing to take risks for in the pursuit of safety uh, right up to the last second. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a very strange combination of understanding the limit of risk and putting your own safety in jeopardy for the the sake of a success, you know? Yeah, so like... It- it's there's a way in which you, their investment is in task, not like narrative or yeah. something. At one point, the voiceover guy says that on the moon, he had to sort of remind himself that part of the experience that he is meant to be bringing back to Earth is like the feeling of what it was like to be on the moon. And he convinces himself to like stop and like look around yeah. for 30 seconds yeah. because he like can, can get it on mission I yeah. think in his head. Yeah. It doesn't want to just sit, stand there agog and Marvel, but that he has to sort of like logic himself to like, Oh no, this is part of why I'm up here to yeah. bring back the feeling of what was it like looking around and therefore I will look around. Yeah. So you have to be both capable of that wonder, but not like lost in it. Yeah. Sending two people to the surface of the moon as opposed to only one, which would be a lot easier by the fucking way. Uh, is like a it has there's a deep psychological insight there that you're sending human society to the moon and you're also sending uh, the biggest virtue of human society, namely that it makes people freak out less. Yeah, like it, it would be really really easy, I think, oh, yeah. for even a strong like test pilot type to freak the fuck out and just not be able to do anything on the surface of the moon if he's by himself. I love the way in the documentary there are these hints about the sort of fear. When you're out there in this little command module, you see the risk you're taking because you realize that if the glass breaks or if the computers quit working or the electrical system quits working, you're not going to get back. And you have time to contemplate this. You have time to think about it. and You have time to run it through your mind a lot of different times. How far away from Earth now, Jim, about? It looks like you're approaching 150,000 miles. If you try to imagine what it feels like for that third of a second when your stomach rises after you go over a hill, and try to imagine that feeling lasting for three days, right. it's difficult for me not to imagine freaking out at some point because of that. And like that's just the physiological feeling of your organs all right. being like free-floating for the first time ever. You could have that feeling on the Gravitron or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It, has, it says nothing about the psychological realization of understanding you're in a tiny capsule somewhere in the distance of 250,000 miles between the Earth and the Moon with nothing but vacuum in all directions. You know, the number of times that the astronauts sort of walk you through the reminding themselves that they had to do of that very fact that you just articulated, Nick, is very humanizing to me. Because they walk you through them saying like, okay, I'm on the moon and that thing is the earth. (laughs) Like not the reverse like it usually is. And and that's like after being an astronaut who's not only trained for this mission for all your years, but also has already stepped out onto the lunar surface. You still have to be like, okay, now let's just check my fucking (laughs) locale here i am on moon that is the old earth 
it never gets normal yeah. fully. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, and it shouldn't, right? I can't even really wrap my brain around this idea where I'm trying to take in now. How much of a default assumption is built in that I'm on the earth? But it's like it's they, every person ever up until like the this small group of people, this little like rugby team of like pilots and navy dudes or whatever, <laughs> like they all were in one place, and these people actually leave that place, and it's so weird where they end up going that we it's actually like a symbol, it's like a poetry expression, it's this ancient fucking bizarre like totem that lives in us even like psychologically and moves our oceans, and they actually go there. The idea of trying to take that in, it's amazing that they like have to like adjust the cameras and even bother to do anything. Yeah. The moon remains this very strange natural mechanism for seeing the planet Earth as you've never seen or been able to imagine it before. And therefore, in a sense, really comprehending the Earth for the first time, literally. You're constantly in a relationship with the planet you came from. Yeah. Which that's not true of Mars. Well, when the guy points out uh, being in the ship and noticing it's aimed at the moon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like when before they've launched? Before they, they fly. He sees the moon out the window and is like, great, we're on Yeah, course. great, we're aimed at the moon. It's, it's, it's one of the, I find that really funny because the absurdity of going to the moon is sort of present. Because what the fuck? One of the things different about a lunar trip is you don't pass any place on the way. Going to the moon, you leave the launch pad, then you leave Earth orbit, and then a couple of days later, after passing nothing, all of a sudden you're at the moon. And that lack of waypoints, to me, had an effect of making it seem a little magical or mystical getting there. You're in that blackness, that dark, the sort of emptiness, and then you just arrive somewhere. I mean, it really is like the little prince or whatever. There is this feeling when like an astronaut is standing on the like monochromatic surface of the moon with the Earth in the background, it's like, oh yeah, this is like a joke planet. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's just black sky, and then, oh yeah, that's the planet I came from, and there's no other features to speak of. You can't even tell if the video is in color when you're I on the moon. Because it's all black, and it's like gray, and the gravity's fine, but like that's no way to live. It has like a deeply complicated texture, but everything else about it is literally monochromatic. But it didn't have to be that. It just turned out that's indeed, once we got up there, it also was still that. Yeah. Right? This like black and white thing in the sky yeah. with seeming craters and rocks and shit. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's exactly what it was. Like the remarkable thing is that people managed to convince themselves that it was something else for a long time. When what it's, it's Neil says like it's it's very it looks very grainy powdery or, yeah powdery Powder. or whatever that's a crucial moment because we do on some level know that what we assume about physical things doesn't always the math doesn't right. guarantee right. that it's not going to be some weird shit yeah and like this this is borne out over and over again by the people who have to walk on the moon is that they like say oh let's go check out that rock over there it looks interesting and they get closer and closer and it's the size of a fucking house right like the all of the very finely tuned visual processing the brain does to determine scale and relations and perspective, it all goes out the window because it is not trained on the textures and the surface of the moon. That's right. And some of the most shocking moments, like photographically in the documentary, are when you are fooled by the yeah, scale yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah like, like the thing that all the command module pilots, the people who stay in, the, in lunar orbit the whole time, say is that the scale on the moon is so strange that 
all of them say they feel like they can reach out of a window and touch it. It feels like it's four feet away when it's hundreds of miles away. Like it just, if I once came around a corner and started to open a door and out of the door came John McCain and he was like <laughs> a foot away from me. And it was like very disorienting because he looked so much like John McCain because he in fact was John McCain, yeah. but he didn't look like a normal person who I recognized looked because I'd only ever seen him on TV before. Yeah. So you could oh, feel yeah. that weird sort of, it's like a moon up close and John McCain up close. That's just not how we're used to seeing those objects. Yeah, no, that in a way, yeah, the idea that you're used to, it comes from some other experience. And so you're trying to like recalibrate. I, uh, I have some found footage to play. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> So, um, maybe like uh, six weeks ago, um, I found in my car while I was uh, finishing up a night driving for Lyft a crumpled up $20 bill, (laughs) which was nice to find. I don't often find. And so I took it, and it wasn't until I got inside my apartment when I realized that this was not just a $20 bill, it was a $20 bill full of weed. And not really knowing what to do with this weed, I put it in an empty vitamin D jar. Occasionally thought about uh, emptying out a tube from a pack of stale old cigarettes that I keep in the closet for emergencies. (laughs) And breaking up the marijuana and putting it inside. That's what I would think about doing if I were to smoke this marijuana. And anyway, after putting it off for six weeks, that's what I did tonight. (laughs) And as I did it, I told myself, well, it'll be for the podcast, you see, because I'm going to watch this For All Mankind movie. And I paused halfway through and made the thing that I said I'd thought about earlier and smoked it and finished the movie. And it just so happened that I paused the movie right before they landed on the goddamn moon. And because of this, every shot in the subsequent part where they are on the moon has blown me away and knocked me <laughs> really off my feet. <laughs> and I'm not going to stop the recording. <laughs> because this is all for the podcast. But I feel like I needed to chat about this as a specimen of what the fuck is going on with the moon in general. <laughs> Because the fact that we, or as a, the fact that I, as a proxy for everyone else, am so unfamiliar with all of this footage. How stoned are you one to ten here? Like 11 <laughs> billion yeah. clock. It's so well done because all of these very, very mundane moments on the moon, no pun intended, are transmuted into something totally different because of the way that they're all put together and the particular music and narration that is stitched over them. In fact, there's very high energy for all of them. Part of what makes the footage so crazy to look at is that they are all such goofballs. So you see these guys sort of like on drug style, amped up, driving these cars (laughs) and gallivanting around. On, on literally a planet with no one else on it. Like that's exactly how they're acting. 
but it doesn't really make sense until you see it happen as to how silly that category is. <laughs> um, made some other notes that are maybe too serious for me to talk about now, but there's a line in my notes. I feel like this is Apollo 18. The last thing I noted before I smoked the weed was that there was a feeling of foreboding described I was gonna ask by an astronaut as they approach the surface of the moon that this planet looked like weird and unwelcome. And then I start to wonder about the hexagonality of the craters, which is <laughs> uh, just to, to my eye. <laughs> the hexagonality to your eye. Um, Neil Armstrong futzes with the American flag for so long. We know one proud image. There's much more minutes than that. <laughs> um, and all uh, sped up in like the hyper chipmunk motion that a lot of, for some reason, the footage is in this documentary. It just looks so ridiculous. Anyway, that's true, right? Only in the um, flag part. I uh, okay. Um, yeah. There are these guys who very suddenly realize that they are much, much higher up than they thought they were. And it's insane footage because you or me, I'm in the jovial spirit with which these guys are driving around. <laughs> this is not the first footage we've like seen from as though the dash cam of a like rover. And we just see these guys like make a weird turn. And then you really do feel like the, the like coyote roadrunner yeah. nature of it. They are like so much higher than they thought they were. They thought they were driving flat and it looks like they've climbed like a huge mountain by the end of it. Um, and it makes me laugh a lot. <laughs> when these astronauts like plunge back to Earth into the ocean, they look like three <laughs> little drink umbrellas <laughs> falling and then radiating uh, out toward the edges of the drink glass that they're in. And it's just like perfect. And then uh, you realize it's people, of course. I mean, it, and you, of course, you know what it is the whole time. These are men in parachutes. The <laughs> simulation is so perfect. I obviously know this has to do with the weed and not just the <laughs> phenomenon and the film. Wanted to get that out. Though, so this, again, has been footage recorded as an experimental and generous act by Eric. <laughs> Uh, thinking on his feet with a small quantity of leftover uh, drugs in a vitamin <laughs> bottle, thought up an experiment of this magnitude <laughs> to match the topic. Space. Bold congruences. No, no, no. Bold confluences are called <laughs> in these times. One guy comes close to saying, my home is in the stars. Which yeah. maybe he means to re-scribe uh, Earth a star. But other than that, I think it, the, any other reading is a little dark. Nothing was really right again. Would be one perhaps unforeseen outcome of all this. Nothing was really right come again. Back to Earth. Nothing is ever right again in some way. I wonder. I wonder if that's just the kind of thing that you'd have to sort of code into language when you gave your little statements to NASA or your wife about how it felt coming back. I wonder if it were the truth that if you wanted to say to your wife, you said like, what's it been like? What's been different since you came back from the moon? If you wanted to say like, oh, what's been different? What's been different is nothing here feels like itself anymore. And I feel like this is the fake world and that was the real world up there. In other words, if that's how any of them felt, I don't think you could just say it like that. 
I became a fucking drink umbrella. <laughs> That's it. I feel like if they went to the moon and got stoned, they would have, as it were, a much more natural experience there. <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, it, you know, on the drugs, I, I, among my many thoughts was just like, oh, God, maybe I'm so high because this wasn't just normal weed. <laughs> that is always a sign you're quite high, right? <laughs> quite high. Simultaneously checking in with uh, the spirituality of the moon and dipsticking DC's weed. Yeah, and DC's weed seems to be in great shape. I am in poor shape. When they're being goofballs on the moon, it's not entirely clear whether or not there isn't some kind of sense of death subconsciously hiding there. Some kind of like weird panic might be completely transformed into childlike joy, or it's just this is what they always wanted to do. So right. it's just pure joy. But there's a kind of recklessness like that's happening where the guy who's driving the little rover or the, like, did you call it a moon car in your monologue? You, you referred to all the cars like there's traffic. <laughs> You're like, oh, could they get in the cars? And yeah, they don't know where they are, which is true. At one point, one one of the guy asked the only other guy, "Is like, did you make this track? Yeah. Would you, I, I, if that's a joke, it's so well delivered. Yeah. What it's, would it mean for that to be a joke? Exactly. What would it mean for it not to I be know. a joke? Yeah, yeah. Like it really seems like at points the moon is that kind of an animal that if you're uh, appropriately afraid and anxious, it'll kill you instantly. But if you have a certain amount of exactly. like spiritual armor where you're not really paying attention to how uh, much your life is constantly in jeopardy, you'll yeah. survive. The guy who doesn't go says the moon seems hostile, right? That's It's like it's only, the, say. only the penitent man will pass. At, at yeah, the very yeah. least, we can say... Upon approach, it might seem hostile and un unwelcoming and foreboding, but all the people who have been there seem to say, one guy says, we felt an unseen love. And then he like conjectures, maybe it's because of all the attention that the earthlings were focusing I on. Know, that's like a that. wild part. Right? E but e you know, either way, it seems like there was an authentically felt spirit of joy or love that yeah. either was a survival mechanism to avoid <laughs> death and dying or was mystical and spiritual or, yeah. or was the fucking earthlings. And I, I would argue that that's entirely a product of the fact there were two humans on the moon at the yeah, same time i think that the way that they are like one guy is just like you're black from like the waist down or whatever and he, the other guy's like well that's really the pot calling the kettle black or whatever <laughs> like they're just like two old maids having yeah. a little yeah though there's that banter and some of that's that vibe where they're talking not about profound stuff yeah. but the the emotional undercurrents as they're on the moon and having this experience together is is like the essence of like what it is to like live a life yeah, you yeah. Know? but there's a thing happening that's like where you can be saying to yourself if you're there on the moon like uh there's so many people and the universe is so big but either there's no god and i've found this like you know weird sort of equivalent that'll do because it's so strange or like i'm really god would definitely be paying attention to me all that attention that the people are paying to you would also be reflected in the universe that if the very stars could see yeah they would go look that one's in the wrong place. If there's anything that isn't just absolute, like dead rock neutrality in the universe that noticed anything happening with humanity ever, this would be a moment you'd expect it to notice. Yeah. And yeah. that very rarely could you say to yourself, like, this is such a moment. If there's a God or aliens watching or whatever, this is when they'd be watching. They're watching me. My mind's one that just goes constantly. So I took a sleeping pill.
slept like a baby. I had one dream that, that was very vivid. In my dream, we were driving a rover up to the north. And you didn't really feel like you were out there. It was untouched. The serenity of it had a pristine purity about it. We crossed a hill. I felt, gosh, I've been here before. And uh, there was a set of tracks out in front of us. And, uh, so we asked Houston if we could follow the tracks. And they said yes. And we turned and followed the tracks. Within an hour or so, we found this vehicle. It looked just like the rover. Two people in it. They looked like me and John. Had been there for thousands of years. What if this, the most like outrageously advanced journey humanity has ever made, given a, a big enough view, is part of a sort of cyclical experience, is sort of destined to repeat itself because this is like how we explore. And so you can't help but like encounter other versions of humanity. It was not a nightmare type situation, nothing like that. Probably one of the most real experiences in my life. Just to undermine the narrative that this is a big step for mankind, right? Like to undermine the narrative with an ambiguous uh, other story. Perhaps that man has been doing this for thousands of years. Perhaps that time is cyclical. Perhaps just that the only thing that's for sure is that you were not the first people on the moon, actually. You were also there thousands of years ago. If a person on the Earth dreams about being on the moon, it means one thing. If an astronaut on the moon dreams about the moon, it means something entirely different. Something that I'm not really sure any of us can understand. You have a dream where you see yourself, which is weird anyway, which would be weird anyway, I would claim, as a dream. And then you see yourself and you've been there for a while. Yeah. Like that was maybe the handoff or something. Like then you became the moon you and that's the old you. And now you're going to go back to earth, but really you're going to know the secret that you're the moon you. I mean, like the, the central, the centrally confusing thing to me is that if I'm an astronaut and I go to the moon, the one thing I'm most terrified of is that the ship doesn't work and I get to stay there forever. Right. That's the central focus of all of my terror and anxiety about being on the moon is that I won't be able to go back. I think what we're meant to really think about is that the dream you have on the moon is a dream of you being on the moon and you do nothing differently than you would if it were real. And the whole experience of being on the moon is well-documented as dreamlike in a certain way that everyone has to keep crafting ways to pinch themselves and and rejigger their kinesthetics so they recognize that this is really happening before them and that this dream is just like an account of a day in the rover, right? Like reality on the moon and this guy's reported dream on the moon are exactly identical. They do they even ask Houston in the dream. What's interesting about that though is is I guess what you'd be saying is um <laughs> having seen the collapse between uh non-reality dream space and actual physical lived conscious reality dream space actually both collapse into the same kind of moon yeah. attitude and sort of moon reactions or whatever i don't walk away doubting the reality of things yeah. as as one might imagine but i'm now that i was on my firmest ground when sound asleep in the in the rover i did trek north 
for an hour. Like that's a it's it's counterintuitive to declare that so real, but he means like as an experience that he like felt. It was vivid, right? I think so. There is a trope, it seems, in both the reality of space travel and in movies about straight space travel, where you are the mystery at the heart mm-hmm. of the weird visionary moment. This is why is that? Yeah, what this is true about space travel in some way. That as much as we want to find out about the moon, we also sense that that it's also like a journey inward or something. It's crazy to me that none of these guys talk about the idea that they're going to like run into aliens. What if they like yeah. glance over and see, what if there's some like malevolent active force on the moon? Like the idea that we are connecting it to, you run into a sort of other, a double you is, I don't know. It's weird, right? The fact that humanity has been able to bring this certain story about technology and a project of physics or whatever to a blindingly sharp focus really reveals uh, how little we understand about what we are, right? We, we know a lot about how to manipulate matter, very little about how to interact with ourselves. And one of the really remarkable and I would argue spiritual aspects of technology brought to this blazing focus is that the question of what we are becomes very, very, very stark, right? Yes, but it is still interesting that that realization is revealed, it seems, as you yourself, in as though in the mirror that's not there, with some added time component that makes it strange. It seems to be this like deeply personal, almost inexpressibly personal trope where you see yourself later or yourself from the past, but also the future, something yeah. like that. And that it, it, if that's the clue that all these voyagers find in the labyrinth of space travel, then it's a, I would say a strange clue to the lesson that you articulated. One thing I would say about watching this footage of the spaceship that I found really weird that I never have this feeling, except maybe the occasional like monument. I really could imagine all these people being dead and like someone watching this hundreds of years from now, as if it was like the only thing from America or like this iteration of like civilization. Yeah, that's exactly true. And so when you feel that, Mm -hmm. then really the only thing he ever did or anybody ever did was go run around in that rover. Yeah. You'll always be up there. We leave the cars there too, right? Oh yeah. We leave a lot of shit up there, I think. Everything, really, except the... Except, yeah. except we, we take a couple of rocks with us. Yeah, right? 500 pounds of rocks. We take the rocks and we and we use as much of the limb as we need to make it up again into the, the orbit of the moon. Yeah, it, it goes uppy up and then... Up, it goes uppy up, but it leaves stuff down there, right? Little yeah, yeah. Exploders the, or whatever. The base. The base. You know, we all often talk about science like it's all about doing the experiments. The experiments are like, that's how we fucking know shit. And there's something so revealing about when you actually have the feather and the hammer, how it's like a gag, basically. In my left hand, I have a a feather. In my right hand, a hammer. And I guess one of the reasons uh, we got here today was because of a gentleman named Galileo a long time ago who made a rather significant discovery about falling objects in gravity fields. And we thought that uh, where would be a better place to confirm his uh, findings than on the moon. And uh, so we thought we'd try it here for you. Uh, The feather happens to be appropriately a falcon feather for our falcon. And I'll uh, drop the two of them here and hopefully they'll hit the ground at the same time. How about that? 
It's very, I, you just think about that like thought experiment in the past actually getting carried out and it really doesn't have any of the seriousness you expect. It's so weird. Do you think that guy dropped the eagle feather and the hammer? Falcon like, like feather. A, a falcon feather, sorry. A couple of times to make sure it worked before he turned the camera on. Yeah, I, I do. Or And I think he probably, <laughs> and I think if you could slow that shit down and like, you know, fucking circle it up and like really get into it, I bet he cheats somehow. <laughs> I really, if I had to. Also, you know what I wish I could do? I wish I could make all animals understand human language and then I wish I could go back in time and grab whatever fucking falcon that is and just be like, listen to me, falcon, because I'm going to tell you a story about one of your feathers and it's going to be fucking crazy. You'll go in a great metal eagle. <laughs> you'll go past all the clouds. You'll travel, and then you will be put into the ultimate race. Not all of you, just one feather. And you will race against the great building stone tool that the, you know, featherless, non-flying birds you call humans use so often. And in the end... The race is a perfect tie. The Falcon's like, I know what hammers are. (laughs) And I know what a fucking spaceship is. You made me understand human language. I was part of the scenario. My question is, why can't I hear the gloved guy (laughs) whose arm I blasted off from? (laughs) Why have I lost comms with him? (laughs) With the Falcon, it's just like looking at you like, what's the moon? Like the, what are you? It's like, you've never noticed that. And the Falcon's like... I just learned the language, man. Barely look that way. I'm hungry, and I don't like you. There are no mice there. I'm hungry as shit. Why are you talking to me? is going on with the goddamn moon. Earth's Younger, moon. older than Earth, same age. Nobody knows really, it's, its origins are mysterious. Its composition is somewhat mysterious. And there is no other planet, or moon for that matter, that experiences total solar eclipses in the way that so, they do. So let me note two asterisks about the Earth-Moon system. One, the moon has the apparent angular diameter that is equal to the star that the planet orbits. And two, there's life here. Right. Two asterisks, not seen anywhere else. Plus, that's strange. I also just, generally, we don't trust action at a distance, and it's like, you know, we don't believe in astrology or whatever. I don't like that the moon is up to some shit, that the tides, the moon's getting involved in our shit. Right. All the people who dismiss astrology forget the fact that for five, 6,000 years, all the smartest people in the world yeah. believed in astrology. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they had this belief mainly because uh, every 30 days, the moon seemed to have an awful lot to do with what the ocean was doing. And if the moon can raise the ocean, uh, surely much bigger objects like the stars and the planets could do something. Have an effect. Could have an effect on the earth. By the way, also, if you were God and you were creating humans and and you uh, made them as we are made, in other words, you made them upright standards, big motherfucking brains, eyes that made it easy to look up heavenward, and then you also pegged the procreation of their species to a roughly 28, 29-day cycle in half of the population, 
you might engineer some kind of artificial object to just help with that whole planning process that you throw up there, you know, and I guess you you take with that waves too as a trade-off. Let's give them a clock in the sky. They'll use it because they're going to have to use something. Nick's the first person who ever brought up the idea to me of a werewolf on the moon. (laughs) (laughs) If you're on the moon, the moon is always full. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, how's that not in a movie already? Wait, but is the conclusion it's their wolf all the time? Unless they're on the dark side, yeah. And I don't like the way the moon, the moon always keeps his face at you. He won't let yeah. you own, you can't ever get a look at the moon's back because he's so paranoid. He's like scooching it's side only, along. It's only pretty recently that we've gotten high resolution imagery of the, what's called the fucking dark side of the moon, which is like a misnomer. Or yeah, because they've been building fucking the hiding places back there or something. Some data that the astronauts have collected over the goddamn years have seemed to indicate by some measures that this thing is hollow, which doesn't make sense for a natural object. Hollow moon. The people who make a lot of hay about the hollow, this alleged hollowness of hollow the moon. Hollow moon hay. They're crazy people. David Icke, this rugby player from Britain. It would rugby? be a nice- Yeah, yeah, he's a former rugby player, and I guess they care about that shit. He was like a celeb. He like came out one day as like, he he's like, I get psychic visions. They tell me I'm fucking all powerful. Well, now, let me get the story right. The press claim- that you claim to be the son of God. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yes, you see, the thing is that... Uh, see, people who had taken him seriously before that were like, but that's crazy. <laughs> and he's like, nope, not crazy. I'm the same guy. This is what the fucking voices tell me. Never in your, in your darkest moments you think perhaps I am deluded and I'm getting the wrong message here? No, I mean, when you've had uh, messages over a period now of 18 months on a daily basis... And they have proved accurate time and time and time again. Go to this place, you'll find this. You go to a place you've never been and you find it. Day after day after day after day. uh, In all parts of the world. Then uh, you're a crackpot if you say, uh, this is not happening to me. Not if you say it is. We could listen to his beautiful sermon, really, is what it is, on the way that the hollow moon plays into, you know, he has a maximalist conspiracy theory involving lizards and, you know, he's one of those guys. But he's not like Alex Jones crazy. He's a different, scarier kind of crazy. Yeah, actually yeah. crazy. I don't know. Actual. He seems more functioning. He's than not Alex playing Jones. a character, in other words. I, yeah. I think that, yeah. What happened was that I was writing this latest book and I sat down one morning I've had one or two thoughts about this before, but they've come and gone. But I sat down one morning at the computer to start writing. And it was like, I've had this so many times in my life in the last 20 years. It was like an energy field descends upon me. And suddenly, I just knew the moon was not what it seems to be. The slide is a picture of the moon and the words moonshin control. That's moonshin control. You see? It wasn't the heavenly body, the natural phenomenon that... We believe that it is. And from that moment, information started to come to me in the five sense world, um, pointing to exactly that. I went on the internet, and within two, three minutes, I was expecting to find nothing. And most of what he finds is from the book, Who Built the Moon? By two cranks. That's not an argument. It's barely an anecdote. It's a very weird way to go about like persuading anybody of anything. He's just sort of letting you into, you know, his pretty cool experience being a prophet. It's the secret in reverse, right? Like he's not wishing for anything, but when something happens, it's meaningful. 
Yeah. A lot of what he goes on to say comes explicitly from other sources. All he really has to add is like, so you see, it's just like all the other shit that I've been talking to you about. It's all revelation. That's the key. If he reasoned with you at all, it, he would re- like reveal the jig was up. Yeah. Is the moon helpful to us in the sense of like asteroids on yes. the way? The moon is sucking them in. Why do we know that? Why do we think we know that? Because it's a massive body in the it's region. Covered in of, craters. And it's covered yeah. in craters. That's a, that's that's one big hint. Right. Yeah. That's a, that, yeah. Yeah. But we don't have tons of data about things actively causing those craters. We don't observe a no, ton no. of meteorites hitting the moon. I know. There's only been one, I think, that was observed in the last 50 or 60 years. So, yeah. For a for a body that's as mystical and as close to us as it is, uh, and as anciently observed as it is, it's not, like, all figured out, even. No, because, like, we're, I think we're beginning to realize even though it's a quarter million miles away, it's still really fucking important for everything that happens on Earth. Right. There are lots of things that it affects, like starting with the fucking tides. Like, who knows what else the moon is doing that we just kind of yeah. vaguely understand, but What's have no, no mechanical like appreciation of. Hmm. There, you know, so the moon, there are all these craters. And as I read, there are little concentrations in the middle of craters of what's called the regolith, the like dirt on the surface of the moon. And the data that they are doing on these little piles of dirt in the middle of craters seem to indicate a certain density. But then we do these seismic experiments that don't match up those to those calculations. So there's a fundamental one theory based on the piles of dirt and one based on the knocking it with a hammer. The simple fact that the data is vague and contradictory enough to support however ridiculously the proposition that the moon is hollow is really a statement about how scarce the data are, right? Mm-hmm. This guy is sort of like making hay in that space yeah, yeah. of we really what we need is a lot more data and a lot more moon rocks and a lot more crust of the moon experiments. Yeah, and like, like the person who makes hay out of a scarcity of scientific data is almost the opposite of a scientist. Definitely. Do you want to hear about the moon matrix or do you want to talk more about the enduring mysteries that are being exploited? No, I want to hear about the moon matrix. Now, now this is where I am probably alone for, for the moment. I don't think I will be forever, but there you go. Um, when I was, um, I mean, I, I do this more in detail in, in the book, but I'm trying to connect dots here. What I my back. came across when I was putting all this together, again, was something I've termed the moon matrix. The moon matrix is a broadcast frequency coming from the moon, which has, in effect, um, hacked in to the human body computer and to the virtual reality universe in general. In general. And has created a sub-reality within the wider virtual reality. I'm going to let him continue. I just want to have written this quote down. The moon matrix is a broadcast frequency coming from the moon, which has in effect hacked into the human body computer and to the virtual reality universe in general and has created a sub reality within the wider virtual reality. Um, it's a broadcasting. <laughs> because I keep saying it, but it's important. We see the moon as physical, but actually its base construct, like everything else in this reality, is waveform information. And I would say, and of course I think this is going to become more obvious as as, as the years pass, (laughs) I would say the moon is actually not just what we've talked about so far, but it's an interdimensional portal. 
through which entities and energies can come out of one reality through into this one. It's their means of entry. Its position, so perfect, as you'll see if you you read not just my new book, but Who Built the Moon. It's just the right position. Its position in relation to the moon and the sun is so perfect because that has an effect on creating this sub-reality. I'm saying that that this frequency is broadcast from the moon and has created a sub-reality which we are constantly decoding and that the genetic manipulation of humanity so widely described by the ancients was to take (laughs) this body computer and tune it in, connect it to this frequency range I'm calling the moon matrix. It operates as a default mechanism. My sub-reality? Soon as you start to awaken, if you don't keep it going and, 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 and stick with it, then what? you'll default back because the pressure of this moon matrix is pushing us into this uh, tiny sense of um, limitation. This is not actually all that different than the Elon Musk, the world is a simulation hypothesis. <laughs> no, it's, in, in, in no it's, it's a little bit more florid and elaborate. Yeah, yeah and it's got a lot behind it. It's borrowing from... The Matrix. <laughs> the Matrix was imagining that the that the malevolent agents or whatever came all the way to our bodies and plugged in directly. But the, these the ones he's imagining uh, have gone wireless yeah. from their from the moon. Yeah. The more we have computers and televisions and cell phones, the more a new kind of bullshit is possible. Yeah, part of what is facilitating the the idea that this man could talk out these words all at once is the idea that Mark Zuckerberg goes on stages lit very similarly and sometimes spouts off just as much bullshit in a yeah. much more mundane yeah. consumerist milieu, right? Right. But you know, this guy's going to go on to say something about the analog to digital TV switch in America. You're familiar with what I mean? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, we stopped broadcasting network television to TVs at certain frequencies. And he has some quote from someone who's quoted in The New Scientist saying, like, we're excited to use our telescopes now to detect uh, galaxies at these frequencies. So he's using that quote to say, okay, so it's possible for that certain frequencies when they're occupied, you can't see other shit at so maybe that's what the moon matrix is doing is blocking up, jamming up certain frequencies because yeah, of waveform yeah. information. I mean, also a thing that all these people do is they trade confusingly on the science that they're questioning and the science that you're meant to accept. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right? It really doesn't matter if you want to question the broadcast part, the from the moon part, the it's designed to like block your perception of this part. There's all kinds of claims, but he isn't really betting on any one of those claims mm-hmm. and trying to thoroughly explain it. Yeah. He's just making more claims. Yeah. He's just got that car. It's got to move, move, move. And I think, yeah. I think we may have said this before about conspiracy theories like the the real conspiracy theorist is trying to make things make sense not to like muddy up our our sensible understanding of the world yeah no it's reality that feels muddy to the conspiracy theorist right and there and there is a way in which the things we were saying before about the moon are the muddiness that this guy or his ilk are trying to clear up like it is strange that this thing is of accidentally identical apparent circumference as the sun it is strange that it might have had a role in jostling Life And that also we don't have an adequate account for its origins yet. And some of the weirdnesses we consent to. And so he's trying to like wrap up this story real quick of 
Yeah, all the seeming accidents of the moon. It's also classic, like, Augustinian conversion narrative in a certain way, where instead of giving you, like, his evidence, he's telling you his story of of how he got there. Yeah. So that he can skip that annoying detail step, you know? I mean, and like the the thing that I get is that there's something more human about what David Icke is doing with the hollow moon than science. That like uh, the fundamental thing that all conspiracy theories at all times and all places have in common is that they impute intention and intentionality where there isn't any. And one of the things that science eventually discovers is that there is no intentionality to the shit in the universe. It just happens. Twelve dudes, for instance, who've walked on the surface of the moon might disagree with that statement. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Even like the strongest, whitest, most full-starch Protestants you can come up with as NASA, you send them out there and they come back different. Yeah. Whether or not they wanted to, whether or not they expected to, they're changed for life because there's shit out there that the human mind is not really built to comprehend. Wait, can we? Are you? We're gonna play a clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have yeah. this this sort of culmination Play one. Neo, like he's he's reading a quote from the Matrix, from the Matrix. Taste or touch a prison for your mind. I would say that prison for your mind is the Moon Matrix, we, which has put us in a vibrational prison that we can only break <laughs> out of by becoming conscious and therefore vibrating beyond the walls of the Moon Matrix, which is a frequency range. <laughs> And if we're not held in that frequency range, that's why society is structured as it is, with its stress and its fear and its war and its conflict, then we start to break out of its perception prison and we start to say, bloody hell, why didn't I see this before? Because you were there, constantly decoding this thing. Now, like I was just saying. (laughs) The moon matrix there is the agent of uh, all of the features of society, I think, yeah, and that, also the vibrational prison from which we must escape. Yeah, that's uh, that. As I as I parse David Icke, uh, the Moon Matrix, which is the radio frequency the Moon is beaming on Earth, uh, causes Correct. humanity in the form of society sympathetically to vibrate in forms that produce yeah. conflict, conformity, boredom, war, and all the other things. Carcerally, as car- well. carcerally, yeah. And it, it's unclear to me whether there is a, a separate vibrational prison or whether society sympathetically vibrating with the Moon's harmonic. Uh, waves is, is the, prison. the prison. I yeah. think the latter. Um, there's a few. I noticed a few problems with the science. Okay. Um, <laughs> I felt like some of the de- the physical details of the process he's describing remained a little unclear. But uh-huh. also the motivations. I'm not. Why did they put us in the vibrational prison? Yeah. I mean, assuming uh, here's the reptiles. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, what is that? Their what's their goal, and why didn't they just qui bono? Are they are they afraid of us in some way that we're gonna go bloody hell? Yeah. Why didn't I see this before? Now I'm going to bring my new vibrations, and that moon better fucking get a race on because I'm coming for him. It seems like, important to his theory that we are busy all the time, like coping with our sympathetically vibrational prison that we're in right yeah be, like it takes energy and shit to like like have to even be like oh, i guess that's war over there yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. The, this is the breakdown it's like to keep you busy so you don't do what stop genius i mean if, if there is a prison you assume there's a warden <laughs> well i mean what's obvious is that we're in a vibrational prison caused by a broadcast from the moon what if this guy is our fucking prophet and everything he says is right and he's just the worst explainer like all of his talent or whatever like went to the wrong person he's just like yes i called the moon matrix that's like the elon problem in a way yeah right? like oh no elon's talking about dangers of ai and he's like because of the stock market could possibly bomb you when he dies god is gonna be like 
what the fuck was that? And he's like, I told him. Do you want to hear how this whole segment yeah, ends? Yeah, 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 Never yeah. mind what I've just said about some moon <laughs> matrix. Never mind that. Even by its very position, <laughs> the moon is fundamentally affecting human behavior and human perception. Oh. Because the moon got maps of is the affecting the Earth. Endocrine system. Uh, tilt, on the the spin, affecting the Earth oceans. Therefore, it's affecting us. We're 60-70% water. We must be affected by oh, it. It's also fundamentally affecting the um, endocrine system. Uh, which fundamentally affect human behavior, human health, human perception. Not with any matrix, just by being there. And it fundamentally affects Hello. this. This is the, the sub-matrix uh, level of moon infamy. It's me, the moon. That give us the sixth sense ability to see beyond the five senses. Moon comes from Moose? moon. The moon, of course, as it goes around, so fundamentally good. affects our perception of time. Right from that to this. We have moons because of the moon. We have monarchy. It's a hybrid monarchy. Monarchy. And one of the major ways they moonarchy. control us seems to be a modus operandi again. Is Mooney money? Yeah. Mooney controlled by the Rothschilds. Whoops! Whoops. <laughs> Did you now, for it. I saw a movie. Hold on. Film. Slow clap. <laughs> some years ago. <laughs> Full round of applause. I saw it on my computer. Moonitor. Moons. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't get into the etymology. Yeah. He's not going to walk Nothing could interest yeah. him less, I think, than yeah. that. I mean, he just, he literally has, like, the words on the, on the fucking slide. Like, like, as though he's discovered this. Like, he's done the word search. Are cows, like, uh, really interesting yeah. animals? Because they're always saying, yeah, they're, always they're saying, trying to tell you. Matrix. They're trying to tell us. There are two things that, that, that the cow tries to give you to give you life. <laughs> Milk and knowledge. Milk! That, it's the moon that's the problem. You would think that what sanity would look like would be like an ability to take the stuff that you hear about or see or whatever and fit it into your own like narrative in like an orderly yeah, yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And that insanity would be like this nothing but jumbled chaos not fitting together. But actually our world is so weird that the mark of craziness is often that the guy is telling you like, oh, that fits right into my narrative. Even if it's true that the moon is like affecting how things are fucking turning out. And, and I don't just mean with the matrix. It's obviously broadcasting to forget any matrix. Yeah, no, forget that. I'm talking about tidal fucking shit that it does like it does to the ocean. Still, bigger on my life is like the people around me, the things I decide to say, the choices I'm making. And if you want to talk about this shit in the sky affecting us, go see the fucking solar eclipse, you know? Maybe you don't need to read your fucking horoscope every every yeah. morning. That may not be the best way to access the, the truth. The celestial truth. The bodies have to offer you. Like, I, I, I mean, the, all we're doing, all we're trying to do is figure out how to sort through impossible stuff during very, like, difficult times, right? Yeah, exactly. And times are difficult, and sh we do not understand how shit works. You don't understand how your bank works, right? Like, I don't understand how my car works. There's all kinds of like occlusions and like little mysteries that have a lot to do with my willingness or unwillingness to engage in some technical shit. And that's a, a factor, I think, affecting most people on Earth right now. There are, to you, mysterious forces that you don't understand that are at work affecting your life. And you have some kind of modest willingness to go figure shit out and then you t you stop at David Icke YouTube video, then I think that's just a shortcut. And it's not unfamiliar to take shortcuts to get to satisfying 
accounts for how things work. We talked a little bit about what is a desire for exploration and what is a desire for escape. And we're using that as a way to look at our sort of interest in going places in space. Uh And it just turns out that that escape versus exploration question is actually comes up a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Eric smoked the weed. Was that escape or exploration? It's a good question. It is true that part of what part of what I'm trying to call out as the conspiracy theory machine becoming the thing it hates is that it is offering you an escape, not exploration or something right. like that. Mm-hmm. If you want to be your own moon matrix, the vibration prison that you can construct is so fucking impressive, the sun will be blotted out by a fucking permanent eclipse. Yeah. That's how goddamn powerful it is. There is no limit to the amount of bullshit you are fucking capable of.